You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll look back on San Francisco's homelessness policy during the pandemic. Getting those hotel rooms who may have been unhoused for you know months or years or even decades, it has really offered an opportunity, I think, for them to get back on their feet in numerous ways, you know, to have case managers, to have substance use treatment options, to have medical care, to have therapy access, um, to be able to just take the time to get your driver's license, which maybe some people didn't have for months or years. So the reprieve from the streets, even if they end up going back to the streets, I think is valuable. And I hope that the city is recording their successes in that area. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. Since coronavirus cases were first recorded in San Francisco, the city has had to grapple with the question of how to minimize potential outbreaks of the disease among unhoused people. Today, we'll talk with two reporters who have been covering those policies for the San Francisco Public Press, breaking stories about seizing belongings, COVID testing, hotel policy, and supportive housing. I talked with Brian Howie, a reporter currently at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, and independent journalist Nula Bashari about how San Francisco's policies have developed over the year. It's very strange to me to look back at the reporting at the beginning of the pandemic, particularly because the tone at the time, you know, now it seems like, oh, the pandemic, right, the thing we've gotten used to. And at the time it was like, oh, the pandemic, this new thing and that we have to adapt and top of every story. Do you do either of you get the sense that the city's stance on homelessness policy during the pandemic has changed significantly along any of these thematic lines um, that we're going to get into? It has changed from the early days when the pandemic was new and was the headline and the concern to now when there's almost this constant talk of going back to normal, of reopening of vaccines, sort of the end of the line. Have there been major shifts? Well, I think there hasn't been necessarily a change in the perception of homelessness. Um, I think that the pandemic has afforded us a lot of flexibility to try new things. And that's not just true in the homelessness sphere, but across, you know, across the whole city with so slow streets and all of these different things that have been implemented since the pandemic began. You know, a good example of that is shelter in place hotels, um, testing out different hygiene stations. There's been a lot of innovation, but whether or not that lasts in the long term is yet to be determined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Laura, I think you you hit the nail on the head in, in saying that at the beginning of this, there was a whole lot of, for lack of a better term, freaking out. People saying, oh, my <laughs> you know, there, there was definitely a scramble on the city's part and a sense of scrambling in the way that they were addressing a lot of these issues. And nowadays, what you're seeing is more of thinking in the long term, how are these new policies? How are these new initiatives going to play out? in the long run as the pandemic secedes and we go back to a quote unquote normal life. 
Yeah, so what I'd like to do is kind of look at some of these issues that have been recurring topics over the course of the pandemic, over the course of a full year now, and and see how they've changed or not in that time. I think the first major scoop on San Francisco's homelessness policy that we had during the pandemic was, Brian, your story about the city continuing to seize belongings to conduct what's called sweeps as the city went into lockdown. Can you pre- Can you briefly recap for us what was happening there and if that changed. So a little bit of context here. I think we have to look back actually at Nula's reporting that came pre-pandemic. She did some wonderful reporting for SF Weekly about uh, the city's sweeps policies and how the Public Works Department was seizing people's belongings when they were doing encampment clearings. There was a lot of backlash from people in the unhoused community and their advocates about Uh, San Francisco's sweeps and how they would go into encampments and seize belongings when people were not there or sometimes when people were there and oftentimes people never saw those belongings again. And so when the pandemic hit, my first question was, is this going to continue? Are they going to continue doing this? And I basically just called up the public works department and asked them flat out, are you going to continue performing sweeps? Are you going to continue confiscating people's belongings? And the answer was yes, because that's city policy. And so we wrote that up and published it, and um, it got a lot of attention. Within a couple of weeks of us releasing that report, the city announced a change in their policy and said that they would no longer be confiscating people's belongings or conducting encampment resolutions on, on the same levels that they had been before. What is an encampment resolution? That's the city's term for what a lot of people in the homeless community call a sweep. It's when agents of the city go into an encampment and inform them that the residents are going to have to leave, they're going to have to pack up their belongings, and they're going to have to go. You know, sometimes these are paired with offers of service, like placements in in a homeless shelter or, uh, you know, meal coupons and, and bus tokens, that sort of thing. But uh, a lot of times what happens is people just get cleared out. And has that held true? This is a question for both of you. Since the city has made it its policy to not do these resolutions and not confiscate people's belongings during the pandemic, has has that in fact come to pass? Uh, Well, I think it's a little bit more open to interpretation. They may not look the same, um, but people are still being moved from one corner to another. Um, They are still having their stuff taken. I think that it has become a little bit more thought out that, you know, partly because of the public pushback that the sweeps haven't been as blatant, but they are still happening. And you can tell when one has taken place, um, or as they call it, an encampment resolution, because you can see those um, DPW, the public work signs, the A-frames going up, and they often have signs stapled to them saying, find a safer place to sleep, uh, which to me is a really interesting thing to tell someone who is homeless <laughs> when there's, you know, a thousand people on the shelter wait list. And just briefly, you did do a story that was very widely read about a sweep, about an an encampment being broken up and people's belongings being seized, but it wasn't done by the city. It was by a private entity. What happened there? And, And crucially, what was the city's response to that? It, it was kind of a perfect storm of events that happened. So there was a large kind of luxury event space on Van Ness and Market owned by the event company Nonplus Ultra. And there was a pretty large encampment outside of it. Uh, I think it was on 12th Street, right across from the Civic Center Navigation Center, 
one of the co-owners of the event company conducted a middle of the night sweep. And so he, he hired a crew with a bunch of trucks and they came in and they seized people's belongings. And there were a lot of things that were stolen, you know, sentimental musical instruments, um, thousands of dollars, a lot of stuff that people used art supplies to make a living. And it was particularly unique because it was a private entity conducting the sweep and it wasn't the city. And that's not something that we see very often in San Francisco. And part of the reason that I think this occurred is because the city said, we're not going to do sweeps anymore. And so the result of that for some, a business owner who wanted an encampment moved from, you know, where his location was, was to take the matter into his own hands, this kind of vigilante justice. So I covered that and it did get quite a lot of reads, but it was also an interesting situation because when I contacted the city to say, you know, do you support or condone this based off of your policy, what this person did, you know, violate city policy, it wasn't sanctioned by the city, there was no one from the city involved, do you have any response to this? And it was just crickets. Um, and I think that's really interesting because it, it could be argued that that was an illegal action. Um, and I think it is being argued that, but the city had very little response. And so in some ways, it almost seems like they condone that behavior. Backtracking a little bit, um, we're talking a lot about people who are completely unsheltered on the streets. Um, and while the city's policy ostensibly was to leave them to their devices, the city also at, at some point decided to offer hygiene stations, to offer people an opportunity to wash their hands because that was one of the measures to curb the spread of the pandemic that was really strongly encouraged from from the get-go. Um, and this also included, in many cases, bathrooms. Brian, you reported on that extensively, and you went and basically found all of these hygiene stations, or tried to. What happened? What did you find? To start out with, you know, a little bit of context for folks who may not be familiar with what the shelter in place order meant for unhoused folks. For people who had houses, the shelter in place order meant that you were staying home as much as possible. You might be transferring your school or work to Zoom or, you know, if you lost work, you'd be filing for unemployment. Um, if you had essential work, you were continuing to work with extra precautions. But for the most part, we were staying home as much as possible. For unhoused people, what that meant was very, very different. Uh, you know, the San Francisco has long been known as a place that doesn't provide very many public restrooms throughout the city. And so a lot of people in the unhoused community relied on restaurants and libraries and other spaces that normally left their bathrooms open to the public suddenly with the shelter in place order, all of these places were closed. And so unhoused people didn't have access to bathrooms and bathrooms provide for them, you know, not just a toilet, but a place where they can access drinking water and wash their hands and stay clean. And like you mentioned, the one constant piece of advice that we were getting from international down to local public health institutions was wash your hands, stay clean. This is how we stop the spread of the virus that came even before the mask mandates. And so what happened initially is even before the shelter in place order went into effect, the homelessness department started rolling out um, these hand washing stations. Basically what they were is these plastic tubs that you would find, you know, I don't know if you can remember this far back to when we had events uh, next to porta potties. You know, you had these little uh, basically porta potty hand washing stations that you pumped with your feet and um, you could keep your hands clean. They rolled out a little over 20 of those across the city. And, you know, my first question was, you know, are these working the way that they're supposed to? So 
I started going out and checking on them and I found that actually quite a few of them were missing soap or water or paper towels. A few of them were missing entirely. And, you know, we informed the, the homelessness department about this. They said, you know, hey, we're looking into it. We're on it. We're aware of the problem. We're working with the vendor to get this fixed. Later in the summer, we checked back on both those and the porta potties and other toilets the city had rolled out specifically to help people in Hun House communities in, in neighborhoods like the Tenderloin and the Mission District and the Bayview and found that 43% of them were still missing essential elements to keeping clean, like soap or water, toilet paper. And again, many of them were missing entirely or were shut down during business hours. Do we know the status of those hygiene stations today? Because we are still under a shelter-in-place order and everyone is still encouraged to socially distance and wash their hands. That's a great question. Because I've been in school lately, I haven't had as many chances to get out and check on them. But I did go and have a look at a few of them in December just out of curiosity. And by no means have any sort of extensive results. I haven't surveyed all of them. But the few that I did check were still missing soap. They were still empty. At least one of the porta-potties I found had a, a pond of urine in it. And so it, it suggested to me that there, there's still an issue here. Nila, do you want to jump in? Because I know you've been doing reporting and you m might not have published a story on this exact issue, but I have a feeling you know what's going on. Yeah, just to add to what Brian was saying, I was actually out in the Bayview yesterday and was talking to somebody who lives um, in his vehicle. And he was asking us, you know, have you seen the bathrooms? Like, where have the bathrooms gone? And he, oh, um, there was a bathroom and a hygiene station up at the beginning of the pandemic, just half a block from his RV. And they were there for two months, and then they just disappeared. And there are a lot of people in that specific area who are living in their cars or their vehicles. And it's a trek to find the bathroom. So I asked him what he does now. And he says there's a bathroom in a park um, several blocks away that he goes and uses, but it's only open until 4.30 p.m. And otherwise, he has to walk even farther to Mother Brown Shelter, um, which is open 24 hours a day. But it's, mm. it's just really difficult. And we asked him, you know, out of all the things that we were talking about, you know, the stress over policing, access to food, you know, what would be the thing that would help you the most in this moment? And he said, I want that bathroom back. <laughs> so it's a really big deal for people. I yeah. think it really, it, it helps them feel more human. It's, um, you know, he was saying that it feels like an animal when you don't have a bathroom, um, you know, yeah. that it's treating people like animals. And so it might seem like something small, but for the people who rely on it, it's a very big deal. I'm speaking with journalists Brian Howie and Nula Bashari about covering a year of pandemic homelessness policy in San Francisco. Looking back over these stories that have come out over the past year of pandemic life, I I was sort of struck by reading about reading headlines about congregate shelters, which at the beginning of the pandemic, they were thinned out, the populations were thinned out, but uh, they weren't immediately shut to my if my memory serves me. And there was also a question, um, you know, about testing, because testing supplies were in short supply. And there was there was an issue with there was it was almost being rationed. Um, Brian, I think you had reported on outbreaks in shelters elsewhere and about testing in shelters in San Francisco, because there was a plan to carry that out. And then 
it fell apart. Can you remind us what happened there? Right. Once again, we're we got to rewind back to March, April. The the wisdom at the time was that unhoused people are far more susceptible to infection. And so people were reasonably nervous. We just had a major outbreak at MSC South, which is the city's largest homeless shelter. Uh, if I'm if I remember correctly, it was one of the largest outbreaks at a homeless shelter in the country. Shortly after that, there was a huge push among advocates for the homeless in San Francisco to to start testing everyone who was in a homeless shelter on a regular basis for COVID because the fear was that another outbreak like that could start, you know, leading to deaths in the homeless community. And there was a local startup company who was providing tests and they were in the process of partnering with the city to start providing tests broadly throughout the city for for residents. And one of the things that they had offered to the city was to test every single resident of the city's shelter system. The Coalition on Homelessness was involved in facilitating this, and it seemed like it was on the verge of happening. And then suddenly, the people from the company changed their tune after having what seemed like a conversation with the city and decided, oh, actually, we're going to change pace we're going to start testing in nursing homes instead. The plan to test everyone in the shelters was dropped. You know, contextualize that, obviously, like we saw at Laguna Honda, the break, the outbreaks in nursing homes were far, far worse than they were in the homeless shelters. But at the time... And they were extremely deadly. Absolutely. And in hindsight, it seems like that may have been a better move. But at the time... People were reasonably upset because they had every reason to believe that unhoused people were extremely vulnerable. And what they saw here was the city channeling a plan to test everyone in these in these shelters elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after that major outbreak, I believe that there were a couple of pivots by the city to to turn shelters, congregate shelters into sort of post sort of recovery facilities I am embarrassed to admit I don't actually know. Does the city of San Francisco right now have congregate shelters for people who are unhoused? I believe it does, but at reduced capacity. So the navigation centers, for example, I think they're operating at 40% capacity, but I'm not positive. Um, Yeah, so they, they are open. They're just not full. The other big debate here was, okay, if we can't put people into congregate facilities in good conscience, or at least we need to reduce crowding in congregate settings, then maybe we can put people into hotels because hotels with a completely shut down tourism industry were completely empty and there was the possibility of reimbursement. And my sense of this is that since the beginning of the pandemic, there has been this split between what kind of the city legislature wanted and um, advocates for the homeless wanted and then what the city's executive branch actually carried out. Can you walk us through how this conversation has unfolded? Maybe we start with Brian and then Nula can pick up as we get closer to the present day. Sure. Yeah. So back in March, April, you saw a lot of pressure on city officials to house at least some of the thousands of unhoused people who are living on the streets. 
In April, the Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to lease 8,250 hotel rooms for homeless and other vulnerable people, which at the time was thought to be basically the entire population of San Francisco's uh, homeless. But Mayor Breed, in the words of Joe Eskenazi, blew it off. She ignored the unanimous vote. She did not commandeer all of those hotel rooms. Um, They cited costs and logistical issues for doing that. That being said, they did lease quite a few hotel rooms and they started putting people in them. And, and, um, you know, by summer they had, I think it was somewhere around a thousand people in hotel rooms at that point. They also had an initiative to put people into RVs and they started opening up uh, sanctioned tent encampments as well. Real quick before we get into the topic of hotels more because there's a lot to unpack there. What happened with the RVs? Right at the beginning of the pandemic, San Francisco leased 29 recreational vehicles from a local vendor to house some of the city's homeless population. I think the plan was to put people from the Bayview into these RVs. I got a tip from someone that they were just sitting empty in a parking lot a month after the city had acquired them. I got in my car and I drove down to the Embarcadero and just drove up and down the waterfront until I found them. And there they were sitting empty and unused in uh, an Oracle Park parking lot. After I contacted the city to ask them why they were still there, they moved them to an RV lot in the Bayview and then the leases were up and the city returned them. They never housed anyone and it ended up costing the city half a million dollars. Now, since then, they've replaced those RVs with FEMA trailers provided by the federal government and they are housing at least 100 people in them right now. Well, an interesting chapter. <laughs> In this approach, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody can really say that there were no mistakes were ever made and no mistakes could have been made because, like, this was a pandemic and everybody was learning on the fly. But that, yeah, I, I mean, that was quite an interesting story to hear about when you, when you went and found the empty RVs. So the thing that did stick was the hotels, the shelter-in-place hotels. And Nula, I'm hoping you could pick pick up the narrative of how this discussion has unfolded since then, because there were a number of questions about shelter-in-place hotels, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong. It was who's going to pay for them because there was always going to be some reimbursement from the federal government and how much exactly and until when has changed over time. And then the other question that I keep hearing is what happens when people's time in these shelter-in-place hotels is up? What happens if, if their time is up and we have to send them back to the street? Yeah, so this discussion has been ongoing and continues to be ongoing, and things are changing all the time, which has made it both fun and exhausting to cover as a journalist. Um, So we currently have about 2,300 residents in -in shelter-in-place hotels across the city. From the get-go, it was expected that FEMA was going to reimburse the city for 75% of these costs. Um, So the city was actually paying a very small amount. And that's one of the reasons that the legislative body was like, let's fill up these hotels. We have this opportunity to effectively solve homelessness in the short term and get people inside. The fact that that wasn't taken advantage of was unfortunate, but it became even more unfortunate when Biden was elected and FEMA quickly announced, I think, the day that he was elected that going forward, they were going to reimburse 100% of these non-congregate shelters for the entire nation. And then a couple of weeks later, they announced that they were going to back fill those as well. So they were going to refund cities for any cost that it had paid. So we are now getting those 100% reimbursed by the federal government. 
The city supervisors have still been pushing to fill those hotels as they empty, and there have been emergency ordinances to that effect. They only last 60 days, and so every two months we have another big conversation about this. But the city has really been trying to shut these down since last fall. So just a few months after they opened, they started a wind-down plan. And that was really difficult for a number of reasons, not just because there was nowhere, there weren't enough placements and permanent supportive housing for people to go from the shelter-in-place hotels, the nonprofits who run them in order to scale staff in to operate a hotel of this size, you know, let's say with 100 people, that takes a lot of hiring, a lot of training. And so all of a sudden, these nonprofits were like, wait, we're going to lose a vast amount of our employees, you know, many of whom are people of color, low income people or people who have been unhoused in the past. Mm -hmm. And so there was no plan to kind of compensate these workers uh, for really being on the front lines for the entirety of the pandemic. And so the issues just kept piling up and kept piling up. And once the FEMA reimbursement news came out, the city kind of put a pause on its shelter in place wind down plan and was like, all right, we'll continue forward with what we have. At the moment, it seems likely that FEMA's funding will end at the end of September. And so we have to figure out at that point where to put people. It is likely and it is already happening that people are exiting back to the streets for numerous reasons, one of which is a shortage of housing options. It's been a really interesting experiment, I think, for the city to try. And for the people who are getting that housing, getting those hotel rooms, who may have been unhoused for you know, months or years or even decades, it has really offered an opportunity, I think, for them to get back on their feet in numerous ways, You know, to have case managers, to have substance use treatment options, to have medical care, to have therapy access, um, to be able to just take the time to get your driver's license, which maybe some people didn't have for months or years. So the reprieve from the streets, even if they end up going back to the streets, I think is valuable. And I hope that the city is recording their successes in that area. And can you talk about the reasons that the city has given that I mean, we're talking about the city as if it were one entity, but there are multiple different departments who work on these issues. Can you talk about some of the reasons that have been given for being hesitant to put more people into these hotels as they empty out? You know, finances have always been at central and there are still some concerns about costs, even with FEMA's reimbursement. And the city doesn't want to exit people back to the streets. It's not a good look. You know, it's not a good look to offer people housing and then send them back to live on a tent in the corner. You know, it's it's, it's also it's, probably hard to do for the individuals who have to actually enforce this. Yeah, it's ground. not easy. The reality is, and I think a lot of service providers have kind of pivoted to really pushing this, is that the benefits of temporary housing outweigh <laughs> the disadvantages of basically just being on the streets. The for the entirety of this pandemic, that there is still people are coming out on top, even if they have only been housed in a hotel for a few months. Mm-hmm. Well, we're running out of time here, but I want to give both of you an opportunity to talk about what you'll be keeping an eye on in terms of homelessness policy during the pandemic. There's light at the end of the tunnel with vaccines, probably, um, but it's not over yet. We're not out of the woods yet. And Brian, I know you're in school, but if you have any thoughts about what you're curious to to, to learn about as we go forward, um, I'd, I'd welcome those. Yeah, you know, I'm really curious about how the city is going to keep addressing the issues of water access, because even though I was writing about this last summer, uh, we're seeing that it's still an issue, particularly in neighborhoods like the Tenderloin, where you have a high concentration of unhoused folks living on the streets. It's just 
really difficult for people to get access to water and toilets that are functional. And this, you know, even though the city tries and tries again to to make this happen, it's still not quite there yet and people are still in need. So I'm going to be keeping an eye on that. Through my reporting, it's kind of led me to looking at permanent supportive housing, which is the housing that uh, homeless people are generally transitioned into from the streets or from shelters. And so it's funny, I started out my reporting with SF Public Press looking at suites and then moved into shelter in place hotels. And from there had kind of transitioned into looking at our housing stock. And what I've discovered and what's been really underreported is how many vacancies we have in our permanent supportive mm -hmm. housing. So we mm -hmm. have around 8,000 units. And at the moment, or as of a few weeks ago, there were 766 that were sitting empty, which is crazy. You know, that's a nearly a one in 10 vacancy rate. And so really looking into why those units aren't being filled, um, what some of the shortfalls are with housing, with permanent supportive housing. For example, it's all in two neighborhoods. They have communal kitchens, if they have any kitchens at all. Um, most people don't have private bathrooms. So there's a lot of issues at play there that I think deserve some of our attention because just because somebody gets into a permanent supportive housing unit doesn't mean their story ends there. You know, I'm really curious to track the retention rates and people's experiences once they reach that point in their journey. Brian and Nula, thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. For having us. That was independent journalists Nula Bashari and Brian Howie. Read their reporting at sfpublicpress.org. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.